0: Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo, and welcome to Tell Me. On this episode of Tell Me, we are talking to someone that nobody knows. His name is Patrick Dempsey. He played a doctor on a TV show. I think it was a medical show that also nobody knows. I just met him. We got along okay. So I hope you all enjoy this episode of Tell Me. We're going to talk about Disenchanted, his new musical that's coming out, which I'm really excited to see him sing and dance. And his philanthropic work with the Dempsey Center and the Dempsey Challenge that he holds every year to help fund the Dempsey Center. And, you know, that's it. I think his name is Patrick. I hope you enjoy the conversation on Tell Me. Hi, Patty.
1: Hello, Ellen.
0: So the story is, Patty just got back from a, a long trip, and he's been too busy to have lunch or coffee with me. So I wrangled and roped him into this instead. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm glad it worked out. So we have our tea.
1: My coffee, actually. I have my coffee, and I'm ready to go.
0: Okay, so we are out on our coffee date. Right. What's up? How is the trip?
1: The trip was good. I've been on the road since January. I started a pilot in New York in January, went to Rome to finish season two of Devils, and then Ireland for Disenchanted. Went to Le Mans. We had it in in the fall this year, not in June. And I came back from that experience, and then the car show in Munich. And now I'm here for a few days and then off to Maine to do the Dempsey Challenge, which is the fundraising event for the center. And then I'm done for the year. I'm just going to chill
0: out. Okay, so see you had very good excuses to keep putting off our lunch date. (laughs) Yes. It's so funny because this morning I was in the shower. Yeah, ready for this? Here it goes. I was in the shower thinking about Patrick Dempsey. There's Uh the clickbait right there. I was in the shower thinking about this conversation with you and thinking about, like, when's the last time we saw each other, what we talked about, whatever. And I was thinking, it's so funny that I don't know if people know this story, but we actually lived on the same street. Patrick and I, when we did the pilot for Grey's Anatomy, we were actually neighbors and didn't really know each other. I had never met him, but you lived like 10 houses up the street
1: from me. Mm -hmm. Curson Avenue. We were living on Curson Avenue and I bought the house from the woman who owned the house you were renting at the time. That's how small that world was.
0: But it's really so interesting how when I say like I'm a spiritual person and all that, I truly believe that the people in your orbit are meant to be in your orbit. You know, whether you call that like energy or, you know, like matter finds like matter. Justin Chambers, the same thing. Like I knew Justin well before Grey's Anatomy. I knew him like we met when we were 25 years old in New York City going out for commercial auditions together. It's so funny how people who are in your orbit are sort of meant to be in your orbit. Some people are meant to be in your orbit for a minute to teach you things and then they get out of your orbit and you don't ever want them in your orbit again.
1: Certainly with the cast, I think that's a good point that you bring up. I've learned so much from the experience by different relationships with the cast, with Justin, with everybody, that have been some of the best life lessons I've ever had in my life. And because of the concentrated intensity of the experience, of all of it, it really has been a blessing in so many ways, because you start to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you start to, we're here to refine ourselves and to improve. And it was really something that we've all kind of lived through together, this amazing journey. And You're still in the process of it. But when you go back and you revisit, or you talk to Justin, like I spoke to him a little bit when I was in Europe, we were trying to get together. There was something there that was quite special where you're like, yeah, it's like this soul that's coming through to help you through this process, to improve and to evolve. And it's quite interesting, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I think that only we can understand what this journey has been, and we are the only ones who truly understand it and each other, and we've all come through it with a tremendous amount of forgiveness and love for each other, and we have learned that lesson that empathy is the way, and we're living our best lives because of it, so it has been an incredible blessing I wouldn't change any of it, even the bad we've learned from and the good we look back on and laugh. And we still all love each other like brothers and sisters. And Indeed. thank you to all these fans who have supported us for so long, because it's really because of them that we get to relish in this success and see this as such a positive experience. And it's been a blessing for sure.
1: Absolutely. And it's really great when you run into people who have been so profoundly impacted by the show. You know, their eyes light up and they're happy to see you. And it's like, you have to hold that for them. And, you know, it's really quite special because anywhere you go in the world, people know you.
0: It's true. Anywhere.
1: And they greet you in a positive way. And that's really, that's really lovely. You know, it's really special.
0: It's like people running up to you. The show has allowed us to have such a positive impact that when people run up to you with a big smile and say, Oh my God, I love you. Or I love Patrick. Or please tell Patrick, I love him. Please tell Justin, I love him. Please tell... You know, it's so much positivity coming at us that it's kind of hard not to get high off it.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: So can we start with Disenchanted first? I don't know if people really realize, like, Patrick is like a real old school actor. Like, he does it all. He can sing. He can dance. I mean, if you watch That's Entertainment, he is one of those triple threat. Like he really is such an all around entertainer. So wait, what was that like you had to sing and dance?
1: Well, first of all, you're very kind at giving me a triple threat, but I did get a (laughs) chance to sing and dance in this film in a way that I hadn't done in the past. So it was really fun to discover my voice. And they had written three songs actually, two songs that I got to rehearse and to record and do that whole process and absolutely loved it, had so much fun, was petrified because I can't sing. I don't really think I have a good voice, but they figured out how to help me find the voice and support it, and it was just really liberating. And of course, the dancing and the camaraderie with the dancers, there's just something so special about working with dancers. There's a feeling there. There's a support group. And it's just, it's fun. And it's just like all these young, vibrant beings just exploding with energy and movement and expression. And that was so much fun to do. And Adam Shankman, who just sort of kept us all in line and inspired us, that was good. He was the director.
0: So wait a second. So remember we did that horror
1: The musical number.
0: I mean, sorry to disrespect who wrote it, but I mean, that musical, we were horrified, right?
1: Did you sing? You didn't sing either. No, I
0: did sing a little, and I was like, listen, guys— I'm telling you right now, like, I can't sing. And especially, like, Sada Ramirez and Chandra Wilson can sing their asses off.
1: And Kevin. Kevin could sing, too. Kevin's got a great voice as well.
0: He does. But I was like, listen, I don't want to chicken out here. Like, we're doing this musical. I want to be all in. I want to commit. I want to try. But I'm a terrible singer. But yes, if you guys can help me sound better, I'm not going to be good. But I also am not going to chicken out. So I'll just dive right in. I totally chickened out. (laughs)
1: I I chickened out completely. I was like, no way in hell am I going to be singing. It didn't make sense to me then and now when you see it, you're like, oh, my God. At least they tried it. You know, at least they tried
0: it. Yeah, it was completely (laughs) ridiculous. I haven't seen it again. But wait, so I sang, but I was in a scene with you and I was singing to you and you weren't singing. So you're so much smarter than me. Yeah, I
1: was just like, I'm just going to just sit over here and not say anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think I was like straddling you singing or something. <laughs> I was, was
1: The whole concept was crazy. And it's one of those memories. You know? <laughs> okay. So Amy's in that with you, Amy Adams. Amy, Maya Rudolph is in it. James is back. Adina, everybody's back. And then um, first of all, I hadn't done a comedy in such a long time. And then a musical on top of it, it was really liberating and fun to just have something that you didn't have to take too seriously. It was all about play. You know, that was really nice to see. And it was a film, so you had a lot of time to practice and rehearse and get it right.
0: And what was Ireland like? I've never been. I'm dying to go. Oh,
1: I fell in love with the place. I was everywhere any chance I got. You know, it was was locked down pretty much, so I had a 14-day quarantine when I got there. I've had over 30 days of isolation and quarantining this year alone, so... I ended up staying in the north of Ireland, which was fascinating. I learned a lot up there. And then I was in nature. So it was the spring of the year. You have all the lambs and all the cows and the calves and everything. It's everything you would imagine it to be. People are great. The problem is you just have this barrier because everybody had their masks on. So, you know, you couldn't go to the pubs. You couldn't go to the restaurants. Everything was locked down. So you didn't get a chance to see that. But great hiking, great culture, really fun, rainy, miserable weather at times. And then it gets hot. It gets in the 80s and people melt down completely. They can't handle it. But I loved it.
0: Yeah, you love that weather. You're from Maine. You love cold and cozy weather.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I love the rain and the cold. Yeah, and the snow. Like this morning, it's overcast here and I love it. It Goes with my personality. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Listen, we got to have colors. If it was Cheery Patrick all the time, or Cheery Ellen would be boring. Yes. That's what I say. That's what I tell my kids anyway.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: I find, it, I tell my kids this, when my kids say, I'm bored, I say, only boring people can be bored. If you're bored, then you're boring. Like, right. I, give me anything, just don't give me a boring person. Right. You know, it's like I'll take it all, but just not boredom, not someone who has nothing to say or no opinions or no fire, you know?
1: Exactly. Keep it stirred up a little
0: bit. So everybody who knows Patrick knows he is obsessed with car racing and everything to do with car racing. Lamont is something he's so passionate about. I know that. What's that
1: like? You know, it was interesting having the event this year because once again, you know, around the world, everybody's locked down. So you're, you're used to being in an event where there's 300,000 people and you only had 50,000. So it felt empty, felt almost like a test, but it was great to be around the teams to be back out, be competitive again and do that. It's such a special event. I just feel like that's my group. Those are my people that I love being around. There's something about the athletes and the teams and it's real and it's raw and nice to get back. Last year, I missed it for the first time in many years. There was a melancholy feeling because you think of all the memories in the past and then where we are today with COVID. And there's a little bit of sadness there, but at least we were taking steps in the right direction, being normal as much as possible. So that was inspiring. It's just harder to travel and be away from the family more and more. It's much harder for me to do that.
0: Did you drive?
1: I didn't drive. No, I still own the team. With COVID, I had a program in place to do sprint racing, which is like a short race, not an endurance race. Le Mans is 24 hours. So I really would love to do a program where I'm doing half hour races, 45 minutes max, things like that. You go in, test on a Friday, qualify, and then race Saturday and be home Sunday.
0: So wait, one person drives one car for 24 hours?
1: No, you have a team. For Le Mans, you have three drivers. Oh, okay. They're broken up into three categories, bronze, silver, and gold, depending on your experience level, gold being the most experienced. And it's the combined effort of those three drivers in the team, you know, to see where you end up at the end of the 24-hour period.
0: Right. Race car drivers
1: are hot. (laughs) Chicks love race car drivers. There's a lot of female drivers getting in, too, which is nice to see.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you have any female drivers on your team?
1: On our team, no. There was a team that was all female drivers. That was in the LMP2, which is a prototype, which is a slightly faster car. They had a good run, and then there was an incident, and they ultimately were taken out, which was unfortunate. But there's more support in the series and in the sport than ever, which is good to see. It's just finding the right people, right? The right driver that fits in with the chemistry of the team. And if you can find a bronze or a silver driver, that's really important. You want to find those drivers before they move up, and that's the hard thing. Usually if they're good, they're on a hot team right away. So it's need to develop the younger drivers, certainly the female drivers, and start earlier on and then have a ladder program where we can get people moving through and up the ranks.
0: Right. That's cool. You know, that's one of the amazing things about what's happening, the cultural shift that's happening across all sports and all kinds of things is you know, women's basketball is getting a bigger profile. Women in racing is amazing. Just the inclusivity of it just makes it more exciting to watch. And I know it's definitely showing the little girls, you know, sitting them in front of the TV and being like, hey, watch these girls play basketball. You know, it, it really makes a difference in people's lives. Representation really matters for the kids to see themselves.
1: Absolutely. And the young kids light up. It's like when you see the young girls watching the women on the team, and it's great to see their face and their eyes are just lit up because they're like, okay, that's, what I want to do. They can see it. They know what the end result's going to be. So it's just a question of really getting in there and developing young drivers, certainly the young women, and giving them an opportunity to develop and move them up the ladder.
0: Cool. Cool. Okay. So then what else do you do? So you went, so you did that movie. Oh, and you also went to Italy.
1: You know, we got through production without any cases, which was remarkable. I mean, they got hit so hard early on. They understood listen, we need to follow the science. And of course, the rolling out of the vaccines was very slow over there, just the people at the highest risk, the older people. But the crew and the cast, everybody really hunkered down and was really disciplined. We didn't go anywhere. We didn't go out and we stayed in our pods and we got through it. It was really an exceptional experience. And You know, you're only working 10-hour days, which is so civilized, right? So you have a good, solid day. You work hard. You come home. You have a nice meal. And then you prep for your following day's work. And it's the lifestyle, just the aesthetic of being over there. The people, the Italians are just so warm and crazy and passionate. And it's been my second season on the show Devils. And I really, I loved it. It was such a great atmosphere.
0: Nice. What do you play?
1: I play a, a banker who's like a bad guy. You didn't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy, which was so much fun to play.
0: Well, you look like shit in a suit, so we know there's that.
1: (laughs) I had the great Italian suits, and then I got to play a a darker character in an international cast. It was really, really fun, great spirit behind it. And, you know, you're in a different culture, so everything's so new, and it's just so stimulating. And then the character was a challenge. It was nice to play something that was darker. You know, you didn't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. And I enjoyed that. And it's very authentic to the financial world. Episode one in the first season takes place around the big crash. So we take a look at behind the scenes, what's going on in the banking world. And then at the same time, we're projecting the real life sort of images and news footage of that time. And then we get into the story and the conspiracies behind it.
0: Cool. Like it takes place in Italy. So is your character Italian or what's that?
1: Well, there's one character that's Italian, Alessandro Orge, who is the lead character, who's the banker, the trader on the floor. And it's an international cast. It takes place in England and around the world. But we shot most of the interiors in Rome. Nice.
0: I love anything set in Europe. It's so, I mean, the Bond movies are so famous for their locations. And it's it just adds such a quality to the production when you set anything
1: in Europe. So The right location just transforms the image when you have it projected in front of the camera, right? It's just like, you can't beat that. You can feel it. You can't create it like the CGI stuff that's created. It doesn't really age well, in my opinion. But when you're there and you're on location, there's something special about that. You know, you just feel inspired and you look at the history. Then you start to look at, okay, where we are at this moment in time. And you put that in context to where we've been as a civilization through the centuries and the millennia. And it's really quite fascinating, especially in Rome.
0: Do you ever have any desire to direct? I mean, directing is good for you because you like to do so many things at one time and you're so sort of fast with the way you think. I feel like directing is like perfect thing for you because you get to think of 30 things.
1: Yeah, you directed. So how was your experience directing one of the episodes? Which It was great to see you doing that. And then I will answer the question, but it was like how, I'm a little insecure about it. I think I would love to do it. I think that way a lot when I'm on set. It's a question of finding the right material where I see it frame for frame. And I feel it emotional beat by emotional beat that I haven't discovered yet. But how was it for you to do the show?
0: It was amazing the first time I did it and I think I don't know if the writers like planned it because obviously they know what episode you're going to direct right so the writers have a plan for a lot of episodes out so I'm not sure if they planned it as it was an episode where a character's mother dies but you know I saw that as like super spiritual and I, you know I look for everything and I look for the signs and everything and I was like whoa that's so crazy like what are the chances of The first episode I ever get to direct is one where a character's mother dies. Like, I feel like I have so many ideas about how to portray everything. And I had a really great experience. Kelly McCreary was like the lead of the episode that I directed. And I had a great time. And Shonda was so generous and let me air my cut. Which was, you know, just a game changer because the only reason for me to do it was I want to show the audience what my version of Grey's Anatomy looks like. That's what was exciting to me to flex another muscle, but also show the fans a little bit different style, you know. But then, of course, like with the second episode, we had a different showrunner and I wasn't able to have the same kind of freedom. And listen, I would say on the stuff that you're doing, like directing would be super fun for you. You know, if you're doing any kind of streamer show where it's very creative and very cinematic, right? Episodic TV, like network episodic TVs, I don't think many people would consider it very creative. Because, you know, there's a formula and everything has to be done a certain way and everyone's so afraid. We don't do things that way or, oh, you know, that's not how we do it. We do this. And it's more like a job where you're taking on 90 extra hours a week, and you're like, why am I actually spending more time here doing this? I kind of don't need to do this. But on, like, a streaming situation where you can be more cinematic and way more creative, I think you'd
1: love it, and I think you'd be great at it. Well, I've done, like, two little short commercials, and I enjoyed that process because it was very quick, and the stimulation is there. But you're right. I think in many ways you're a traffic cop when you do episodic because the look has been set in the pilot. If you want to move the camera in a different way that's out of sort of context with the vocabulary that they've already said visually, I think that would be very challenging where you're like, wait, why can't I do that? That would be the biggest challenge, I think, for me. I mean, that's the whole part of doing is playing with the camera, really, and certainly working with the actors. But I did find any actor who would come over and direct was usually the better director. They understood time management. They understood what shot they needed to be in on and the close-up. They didn't overshoot. And they were great with communicating with the actors like Kevin. Chandra was great. Anybody who made that transition, you immediately, you wanted to support, of course. But at the same time, you got great feedback. And things were really fast-moving and stimulating.
0: I agree with you 100%. I love Mm actor-directors because they just get it, you know? T.R. is starting to direct now, and he's been shadowing over on Gray's, And he's going to be incredible because he's such an amazing actor, and he's so sensitive and so thoughtful. He's very detail-oriented.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. His attention to detail is really strong, so he'll be good and patient with that.
0: For sure. Do you remember when we worked with Eric Stoltz? I loved Eric Stoltz. Yes,
1: Yeah. He would always wear a suit. Yes. I loved he always elevated the day because he would dress properly, come in all dressed up. And once again, you know, he understood how to communicate with the actors. He knew how to place the camera to move it in an efficient manner. And he didn't overshoot. And he got it. He kept the atmosphere really loose and fun. I enjoyed working with him.
0: Yeah, I remember we we shot some episode in a jail or something. There was some jail person that was going to get put to death or some crazy story. And... I just remember I have like a very specific image of Eric Stoltz in a suit in a jail cell. And I was like, what the fuck is actually happening right now? It was kind of crazy. Yeah. I don't remember a lot, but just these certain moments stand out. I wonder how he is.
1: And how was Denzel? You had Denzel come in, right? And he directed. Oh, my God, Patrick. So that's like amazing, right? He comes in and like the C parts. He's so amazing as a man and as an actor. How was he as a director?
0: Listen. That guy, I mean, Denzel is like, his energy is just nuts. He has this vibration, right? He just is like as charismatic as, I'll break this down for people listening about actors. Like certain actors just have an energy and a chemistry, like superstars are superstars for a reason. Like when you walk in a room, if Rihanna's in that room, you know Mm -hmm. she's in that room. Before you even see her, you know she's in the room. There's just like an energy and a vibration that they give off that makes them super charismatic. Patrick has it, Obama. Mama has it. Anyone that I've ever met that's like, crazy charismatic has it. And Denzel has it in spades for sure. But Denzel was amazing because, you know, Denzel's a movie star, right? He doesn't know shit about (laughs) directing TV. So, you know, but Debbie Allen was like, what can I do to keep Ellen interested? What can I do to keep Ellen here, right? Because after you left, I was like, "Ah, why do I have to stay here? I got to go now. Everyone's gone. Sandra's gone. Patrick's gone. I got to go too. And Debbie was like, no, no, no. You got to stick around. I'm going to bring in a surprise for you. And she would never tell me who it was. But she knew I was a huge fan, you know?
1: So, you had no idea he was going to direct the episode?
0: No, no. Debbie kept saying, I have surprised you. Gee, I have surprised you. Just settle down. Settle down now. You know how Debbie is. And I would say, Oh, Debbie, come on. What is it? And then all of a sudden, there he comes. And he came probably three weeks prior. So, he could get caught up because Denzel doesn't watch much TV. He's probably never seen the show. He did the show because his wife uh-huh. is a big fan. His wife is really who you know told him like, "Oh yeah, that show's amazing. You should go do it." You know he was getting ready to, I think, direct for HBO. And so I think it was he saw it as a good, like, exercise to sort of just come in and direct something quick. But, you know, his presence is amazing. And to act for him, it was a great episode where it was a true story of a a sort of epileptic patient goes into a seizure and beat up a nurse. And it really happened. The episode was titled Sound of Silence. And Meredith gets her jaw broken and her jaw's wired for the whole episode. So I couldn't speak. I had no dialogue. But anyway, working with Denzel was amazing. He went nuts on me. This is a good Denzel story. As an actor, you have to be tough, right? We're talking about these circumstances, these hours, these environments that you're in. You have to have a thick skin to deal with Hollywood, right? In a number of different ways. You got to be tough or you just can't hang. And so this good Denzel story, and I love the guy. So, you know, we know he's a big personality. And one of the scenes at the end of the episode, and I have to go apologize to this man who beat me up, right? And so Meredith was really hesitant and reluctant, right? Like my jaw was broken and I I couldn't bring myself to go hear the apology from this character, And this man woke up and felt terrible about what he had done, right? But after what I had been through and all Meredith's been through, she was just at the point where she just wasn't having it. I don't care that he wants to apologize. I don't want to go hear him. However, I think Richard, Jim Pickens' character, convinces me that going to hear his apology is the right thing to do. So Meredith does it reluctantly. So I get pushed up in the wheelchair And he's in a chair, and we're sitting across from each other. And I didn't really want to talk to this actor or see this actor before we did this scene. So I didn't have much interaction with him at all. And then he apologized to me, but he was doing it really softly. He made this choice to speak very softly. And I was pissed that I had to sit there and listen to this apology. And he wasn't looking at me in the eye. Again, we love actors who make choices, right? And I yelled at him, and I was like, look at me. When you apologize, look at me. And that wasn't in the dialogue. And Denzel went ham on my ass. He was like, I'm the director. Don't you tell him what to do? And I was like, listen, motherfucker, this is my show. This is my set. Who are you telling? Like, you barely know where the bathroom is. And like, you know, I have the utmost respect for him as an actor, as a director, as everything. But like, yo, we went at it one day. And then his wife came to set to visit. And I was like, I was not talking to him. I was mad at him. And I told his wife, I was like, yeah, he yelled at me today. Yeah, he let me have it today. And I'm not okay with him. And I'm not looking at him. And I'm not talking to him. So we didn't get through it without a fight. But, um, you know, that's actors for you, passionate and fiery. And that's where you get the magic and that's where you get the good stuff. So it was an amazing experience. It really was.
1: Well, it's interesting, too, uh, you know, when you're in a moment like that, you're in front of the camera and you're either doing off camera wide shot, you're living in that emotion all day long. So things can set you off really quickly. So it's really hard to keep that boiling, that emotion. So it's accessible, especially in television, because you got to crank it out. That you are raw the whole day. And it's important to create the right atmosphere on set where you're safe to be able to do that. And all actors work differently. Some people use the environment, some people don't, some people use other techniques, but it's interesting. And so he was cool with you after that, after you sort of went toe to toe?
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, he knew and I gave it right back to him. And that's what it is. Any set, unless it's a comedy, you know, it's an emotional place. And there's passion and there's fire there and there's emotions and Again, that's what it takes to get the good shit. So we were fine after that. And, you know, he's just one of the best to ever do it. So,
1: Well, how was the next take after that?
0: I don't really remember because I was very mad. Well, you were your Scorpio too. So you get
1: flared up pretty quick.
0: Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> I get that tail and that's it. I will sting your ass so fast. And again, yes, I was in the moment. And to me, it doesn't matter. And, you know, writers will fucking cringe if they hear me say this, but... It is about the words, of course, but I would rather have true emotion and mess up the words a little bit than have a false moment on camera and get the words right. And I think many writers would agree with that also. Like the emotion is what you have to convey. So whatever you need to get that emotion to be an honest moment, that's what you need. And so, you know, I don't know what the take after was like, but imagine Denzel Washington coming on to direct an episode of Grey's Anatomy like that is something I never thought I would see, ever.
1: Yeah, I heard about it, and I was pretty jealous. I was like, oh, it'd be great to work with him. You know, he's such an icon, such a great actor. I ran into him really early on in my career. I was starting a movie. must have been maybe 19 or 20 at the time. And we were downtown shooting. And, I, you know, it's first thing in the morning. So you go over to Crafty. And I was entirely on the wrong set. So I'm <laughs> waiting in line, ordering For my your breakfast, breakfast burrito. breakfast burrito, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he eats a breakfast burrito every morning. And he's like, Hey, man, you're in the wrong set. This is not your set. Get out of here. And then he looked at me and he winked and he was just giving me shit in a good way, but scared me to death because he gave me the Denzel Washington look. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm on the wrong set. And here he is like, you know, Mr. Superstar. Then I went over to my my side of the, <laughs> the, the area where we were shooting. But that was a great memory. My first encounter with a Hollywood star.
0: That's hilarious. Yeah, he's definitely a presence man. I mean, he, you question. feel that from a mile away. I wonder what he's doing lately. I don't know. You know, when you have his career, it's got to be so hard. I always think of like him and Pacino. It's got to be like so hard when they've been in the most iconic movies. It's like, how do you top what they've already done? They must read scripts and be like, oh, this sucks. (laughs) You know, I think
1: it's probably harder to find material like everybody. You know, how do you find material that's inspiring, that's going to be relevant?
0: So true. What are you watching? Are you watching anything good right now?
1: 100 foot wave. I just finished that documentary. You know, like, isn't that amazing? I'm totally petrified of the water. Like, I will not go in the ocean. It's the one thing that is my biggest fear. And I've got to kind of dive into this, no pun intended. But my son was out surfing last night. And, you know, I just kept thinking about when he gets knocked down in the wave. I mean, what it would be like if you're doing the 100 foot waves. But those guys are pretty. Amazing people, really thoughtful. And I love that. I've been watching that documentary. And uh, certainly you have Kyle Lenny, which is another guy who's just breaking barriers in that world as an athlete and just as a as an artist in the way he's sort of approaching the sport is really quite fascinating. So that's what I've been watching. Um no films really. I haven't been really watching anything. I find the documentaries is what I, I gravitate, I think, to to docs. I'm always interested in learning something new or getting turned on and trying to find some inspiration somewhere.
0: What was crazy about the hundred foot wave, and I don't think I have finished it yet. I think there's maybe another episode or two that I haven't seen, but what's crazy is speaking of women in sports, The woman, I forget her name, but she gets knocked out. So I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't seen it. You should watch it. It's really amazing. You're literally on the edge of your seat the whole time. She gets knocked out, and they can't find her. They go on the jet ski, and they're trying to find her. And they're able to get to her in time. They pull her out. They revive her, throw her in the ambulance. And then he goes right back out. And I'm like, wait, what?
1: Yeah, gets her to the beach. <laughs> he turns around and he's going to catch the waves. That's how brutal that sport is.
0: I mean, I was like, what is wrong with this dude? He's got a sensitivity chip missing. Like, how do you go back out there after you just watched
1: your friend pretty much die? Probably because of that very reason. Like, you have to go back into the fear of that, right? So maybe that's the thought process. It's like, if I don't do it now, then I'm going to be too scared to go back and confront it. My kids surf, too.
0: And I've gone out there. What I do is not called surfing. Not sure what you call it. It's sitting on a board. And then I just look at the coach and I'm like, what do I do now? And he just shakes his head and laughs at me. And like, I remember he took out Chris and Jesse Williams. And it was like literally the worst day for them to try their first surfing lesson. It was bad waves. It was rainy. Like it was the worst day. And I was like, I don't think... Just you-
1: big waves? Just a big surf? Was it just really big?
0: Yeah. It was just not like... A beginner's
1: day, right?
0: It it was not funny at the time. But like after, I was like, man, what were you guys thinking? But why are you afraid of the water? Because me, I'm afraid of sharks.
1: Oh, I don't want to drown. You know, growing up in Maine, you never went in swimming. You'd go boating. You'd do some stuff. But as kids, it's just so damn cold, you didn't grow up doing it. I think if I was a little bit younger, I'd probably get into it. But I don't feel comfortable. Like, yeah, what's underneath me? And then am I going to drown?
0: Discovery Channel called me and asked me if I wanted to do Shark Week. Yeah. And I was like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> they were like, oh, you'll be in a cage. And I was like, yeah, no. I don't, that's great. And also because I have asthma, I've tried to learn how to scuba dive. And I just have too many psychological blocks with like breathing underwater. There's nothing about that appeals to me. And so I can't really scuba dive. But they were like, Oh yeah, we'll teach you how to scuba dive. And you'll go in the tank and then the sharks will swim around the tank. And I was like, Bye. (laughs) I swim with enough sharks in Hollywood. (laughs) You know, I've been swimming with sharks. That's a great movie. Did you ever see that movie with Frank Wally? You've seen that. Yeah,
1: many years ago. Yeah, it was a great film.
0: Can we just talk about, if anyone doesn't know about the Dempsey Center, like this is really amazing what you do. And I just want to talk about it for a minute because it really does help people. And I always say that this podcast is about me using my platform to have people tell me their stories and I want it to help people. And the Dempsey Center really does help people. So tell me about that, please.
1: Absolutely. And thanks for bringing it up. So the Dempsey Center is a place where we treat people who have been impacted by cancer. We don't treat the disease, we treat the person, the caregivers, the whole family in a holistic way. So that really was inspired by my mother's cancer journey who passed away in 2014 after a long battle with cancer. And there was nothing in the town I grew up in. This is Lewiston, Auburn, Maine. And the center was created in her memory and to help other people and other families that have been impacted by cancer. And it's at no cost to them, which is why the Dempsey Challenge, the bike event is so important promotes actually people getting healthy and being active, either on a bike, walking, or running. And it's the most rewarding thing I do. It's the most inspiring. And I think having the awareness from Grey's Anatomy has made it possible to be able to do this. And I think fame has its good and it's bad, but I think this has been the most positive thing that's come out of Grey's Anatomy is to have that platform and that awareness and then people perceive you as a pseudo doctor anyway. So it's nice to be able to do something in the town I grew up in and to give back to the state that I was raised in. And uh, it's very meaningful. I learned so much from it and it's making a big difference. And I really firmly believe as soon as someone is diagnosed This type of complementary medicine needs to go hand in hand with somebody so that they're not alone. There's a lot of time between getting the diagnosis and then what's the strategy moving forward with the treatments. And that's when we need to get in there and work on the nutrition, work on the mindfulness and supporting the caregivers, the family, the children, all of that. And you start to see, okay, this is what life is about. This is the meaning is being. Empathetic and giving back. And I think that's what the most important thing is. And there's a lot of work to do. Uh, There are more people to get the word out. And that's the mission.
0: That's real talk right there. Very real talk. I think it's amazing. And I know how many people it helps just because I'm close to you and I hear the stories.
1: And You know, you grew up in Boston too. So my mom was treated at Mass General. We have a lot of people going down to Boston, getting treated there and coming back through. And certainly in New England, there's so much going on environmentally with cancer You know, and I'm really concerned with the last year, people haven't been getting in to get their screenings. So we're going to see a big, I think, uptick. People who have been diagnosed and we're a little behind uh, and we need to get them up to speed. So that's the important thing. Even in the midst of the craziness, go get your screenings done, please. That's really important to do.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I hope people understand the significance of what it takes to really help people that are sick or dealing with people that are sick over time. So I give you a lot of credit because it's hard work, it's emotional work, and you've been doing it for a really long time. So my hat's off to you, my friend.
1: Well, thank you. And I think you start to really, you know, we talk about medicine in the show and certainly the make-believe world of that, but you see how powerful that interaction with the nurses are. And I think we always give them a bad shake on the show, but I know in my mom's journey, the nurses had all the information. They were badass. They knew what was going on. They knew how to talk to the doctors and get the feedback for you. And certainly with COVID, you know, they're getting hit so hard right now. And they're so demoralized because you get close to someone and you may lose that person in their journey, you know, but you're going to stay close to them if they're survivors too, but there's always then that looming, is it coming back? Is it going to come back and revisit me? So it's a big investment in time and emotion, but it's important for us to do because I think as a society right now, we've lost our empathy. I agree. And we need to be much more compassionate in those moments when we're the most scared, which is usually what the anger is coming from. And how do we dispel that fear? And we just need more love in the world. And that's the biggest challenge. And it's not until you're facing the end of life that you start to look at these things in a different way. It's too bad it takes that for us to wake up.
0: It's true. It is too bad it takes that. But, you know, that's the path to living a fulfilled life is if you can get that before your end of life, you know, then you can have a much more meaningful life if you can understand that empathy is the way to go not wait until you have a scare to get you there to live your best life and be empathetic you're winning for sure all the way around Mm -hmm. i love you patty thank you so much for doing this love you too